0: Welcome to the Genealogy Gems podcast. It's a show filled with family history, research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 183. Well, it's back to school season in the U.S., And if you're like some of us, you're bustling into organizing and storage mode, reconnecting with friends, and maybe you're looking forward after each busy day to curling up with a good classic book. Well, in this episode, we've got inspiration in all of those areas for you. I've got a very special expert joining me in this episode to chat about digitizing and storing your old movies, videos, audio, and pictures. And even updating those old movies that maybe you've already put on CD. Lots of important storage work to do. I've also got a highlight clip from my exclusive Genealogy Gems Book Club interview with the editor of the new Laura Ingalls Wilder biography called Pioneer Girl. You are going to love this. And finally, we're going to connect you with fellow genealogy lovers who are following the show and they've written in with questions like the difference between Dropbox and Backblaze for cloud storage. And speaking of Backblaze, they are the official backup of the Genealogy Gems podcast and one of our wonderful sponsors who helps make the podcast free. Uh, they've just added an extra layer of security that you can activate on your Backblaze account to better protect the data that you have stored with them. Now this new feature, it's called two-factor verification. It requires that we present both our account credentials and a verification code from a second device to gain access to our Backblaze account. So that means if somebody's trying to steal your data, they would have to have both your account information and access to the phone that's tied to the account. So the option to require both these security steps can really make Backblaze's solid security even more powerful. It's kind of like you're giving Backblaze permission to lock the doors to your data with two different keys instead of a single one because you're willing to take the time to use that second key whenever you need your access. This is absolutely just one of the reasons I am so glad that I have chosen Backblaze as the official cloud-based computer backup service for Genealogy Gems. I sleep more easily knowing that Backblaze is backing up my important data, particularly all that genealogy research I've done, my photographs, everything all the pictures of Davey and Joey. I mean, (laughs) boy, have I been piling those up. And of course, all the trips I've been on in uh, traveling the country and speaking to all of you at genealogy conferences and seminars. Backblaze is backing it up 24-7 without me having to do anything. But live my life, do my genealogy research, and of course, bring genealogy gems to you. There's a lot of files involved in that. So I encourage you, don't wait another minute turn to Backblaze. It's going to give you peace of mind so that you can uh, move forward in your research and know that everything is safe and secure and doubly secure if you wanna take advantage of this new feature. You can go to backblaze.com slash Lisa. You will scroll down the page, see my smiling face, and there's a great offer there for you for a full year of backup. And again, as I've mentioned before, they back up all your files, including video. So uh, what are you waiting for? Head to backblaze.com slash Lisa. Now in the genealogy news, genealogists are losing sleep lately because of a new DNA tool, but in kind of a good way. Now I'm talking about Ancestry DNA's release of its common matches tool. Diane Southerd, who is our resident DNA expert here at Genealogy Gems, shared the breaking news on our website recently and within hours of when the new tool went live. She loves it so much because she's already spent hours using common matches, which she says is blowing her genealogy mysteries wide open. What this tool does is pull out shared matches between two people who match at fourth cousins or closer in your DNA results. The tool is on Ancestry DNA's main match page. It's between the pedigrees and surnames filter and the maps and locations filter. And I'll have a link in the show notes for you that will take you to a blog post on our website with Diane's great visuals and her complete explanation of how to use this really cool new tool. And we heard from Elena on Facebook after she read Diane's post, and she said, quote, I stayed up for hours past my bedtime last night, resolving hundreds of mystery matches. Everything makes so much more sense now. I've been mentally begging them to come up with a way to search for two surnames. And this does an even better job than that. She says she is so thankful for this extremely useful new tool. So have you tried it? I'd love to hear what you think of it. Let us know how it's working for you. You can uh, email me at genealogygemspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I love when you leave voicemails on the voicemail line, 925-272-4021, or you can head over to our Genealogy Gems page at Facebook, facebook.com slash genealogy gems, like us over there and um, leave a post. Let us know what you think about the tool and and about any amazing breakthroughs that you're having with that we'd love to hear. And if you are a RootsMagic user, did you install that required update recently so that it's going to continue to work with FamilySearch? This is pretty important if you use FamilySearch and RootsMagic. On July 30th of 2015, FamilySearch made some changes to its own website, and this kind of changed how it interacts with other applications, including RootsMagic. So, Roots Magic had to kind of tweak things on their end to keep them working together. So if you're running Roots Magic 7, look for the update available indicator. It's in the lower right-hand corner of your Roots Magic 7 program screen and click on that. You'll then be able to continue working with Family Searches Family Tree as if nothing had changed. Uh, if you're running Roots Magic 6, you can either upgrade to version 7 for around $20, or you can download the free Roots Magic 7 Essentials version and switch back and forth between them with the same database. Head to the show notes for this episode number 183. I'll have a link there for more details. And be sure, of course, to let your friends who use Roots Magic or your genealogy society know that they need to do this little quick update in order to be able to continue to work seamlessly with FamilySearch's family tree. And of course, Roots Magic is one of our very valued sponsors here of the podcast. So we appreciate them. They also help make this podcast possible. Uh, And there's lots more news. I hope that you are getting our Genealogy Gems free newsletter. If you're a new listener and you haven't signed up, oh, you got to get over to genealogygems.com. Sign up for our free newsletter. It comes out every Thursday and we've got links to all the great articles that come out every week. We pretty much have a new article for you every day. And you'll have links there and some highlights and just all whatever is coming out. Things like this where a little something changes and you need to do a quick click to stay up to speed. Um, we'll make sure that you know all about it over at the Genealogy Gems free e-newsletter. And of course, those articles also appear on our blog, on our website. And speaking of the website, have you noticed anything different on your smartphone? some people noticed a couple of changes on Facebook because we post some of our articles over there and some of the links weren't working for just a day or two. And that was because we were actually doing some back end work on the website in order to get a brand new mobile friendly version of the website for you. And that whole process is complete. It looks like all of our links are working again. So this is really great because I know I don't know about you, but I first thing in the morning, oftentimes before I even get out of bed, I'm checking my email, I'm going through um, reading, you know, catching up on some newsletters, checking the news, all that kind of stuff. And I'm doing all that on this little screen of my smartphone. And we do that throughout the day, of course. Well, when you head to a website, these wonderful full-blown websites don't always work so well and aren't as easy to view on a small screen. So we have made ours mobile-friendly for you. If you get on your smartphone or your iPad and you go to genealogygems.com, you'll get our new mobile-friendly version of the website. It's laid out in a way that will work much better on your phone. It will be responsive to your smartphone. I want to bring your attention to the fact that up in the left-hand corner, you'll see Menu. So um, what you're looking at on the first screen, of course, is all the content that appears on our homepage, our blog posts, our link to Amazon, uh, our drop down menu for all the topics that you can search for on the website, all that kind of good stuff. But up in the upper left hand corner, you should see um, a little place where you can tap and go to our menu and there you're going to get the full blown menu that you would normally see on our website, so everything is still available to you. It's just much easier to read. The print is bigger, the images are nice and clear, and um, we're just striving to keep up with technology just like you are, and make sure that we can deliver all of our content to you However, you want to consume it. And I know lots of you are using your smartphones and your tablets to do that. And yes, Genealogy Gems Premium members, you can sign into your membership there on that first home page on your smartphone, and it'll take you right into all the content that's available to you on the Premium membership. And stay tuned, because there are some really cool new um, features coming to Premium over the next couple of months, and we'll be talking more about that in the future. Just more things to look forward to. We do not sit on our laurels around here. (laughs) And I know you don't either. And you've been writing in and letting me know about all the cool things you've been doing. So we're gonna check in with you next at the mailbox.
1: letter from my old hometown One with some jokes from my old pal Jim Brown Bring me a letter from that girl of mine Saying that he's longing for me all the time Bring me a letter from my proud old dad that we are winning, and I bet he's glad, but more than any other.
0: Well, here in the mailbox, we recently heard from a new RootsMagic user who bought the software to keep track of his family tree, and he was still finding it kind of difficult to corral all of his data in one place. So here's what he wrote, I have my family tree splattered everywhere, FamilySearch, MyHeritage, and Ancestry. I'm afraid of losing control of my tree, and I'd like some advice on keeping things straight. Each of the sites I go on seem to offer some different information. So I start posting tree information on different websites. Can you offer any suggestions that I can use to centralize my data across different sites? That email is from Lewis, And this is not just a problem that Lewis is having. In fact, I venture to guess that uh, most people with online trees in more than one place have this problem. Well, I want to share my kind of approach to this. I look at Roots Magic and my Roots Magic database is on my computer as my master database and family tree. So I may post things online, but I'm only putting copies online. Websites, they come and they go, right? And I want to keep ownership of my own master file on my own computer. So that way, if a website or a company is purchased or they go out of business or they change their focus, whatever changes, I still have my master file as it always was on my computer. I'm retaining control of it. And with that kind of thinking, I can post my tree online. So I keep my family tree and my complete database and master files on my computer. That way I don't lose control of it. When I do post family tree information online, I'm gonna be fishing for family, so to speak. I'm trying to connect with my cousins, people I know, people I don't yet know, and gain some research leads. That's the purpose of posting that information online. It's not to build my entire tree in its totality and keep it forever, because the web is not forever. So it's to put it out there in targeted ways to generate new leads and make connections. So with that in mind, I upload only the portion of the family tree for which I wanna generate those connections and those leads. I don't put my entire tree on every website because I don't really wanna get bogged down with a ton of requests and alerts for far-flung branches of my tree that I'm not focusing my research on right now. Has that happened to you? Have you put your family tree on a website and then all of a sudden you're getting a ton of hints or a ton of of requests for connections and and the, the folks that they're actually connected to you through are way out there on the branches. And it's really not the purpose and the focus of what you're researching. It can get distracting. It can get totally overwhelming. So to do this, what I do is I make a copy of my database I will make a copy of my RootsMagic database as a GEDCOM file, which is that universal genealogy database file. And then I edit it to fit my research, what I wanna research on, who I wanna make connections on, and then I upload that to the website that I'm gonna be using. As I find documents and data on genealogy websites, I usually go ahead and attach them to the tree that's on that website, but I always download a copy of the document and I retain that on my computer or in my cloud storage, make sure it's back up. And I make a note of it in Roots Magic. That way, the complete database, all the source documents, everything is in one place. I've got control of it. It's backed up and it's safe. And the websites, the genealogy websites I use and the trees that are on them are targeted. They're not out there creating chaos to overwhelm me, but they're actually generating exactly what it is that I want to discover. I hope that helps you, Lewis. I appreciate your question because I have a feeling a lot of you out there listening probably have had that kind of question, and I hope that helps out. Uh, and if you have additional ideas on this kind of um, approach or an approach that works for you, would love to hear from you as well. You can get in touch with me, Podcast at gmail.com and the voicemail line 925-272-4021. All right, well, coming up next, we are going to hear from a digital conversion and storage expert who's going to help answer our questions about how to cope with our files.
2: who always squeals you can do an awful lot in seven real take your lessons at the movies and have love scenes of your own though she's just a simple little ribbon clerk close your eyes and think you're kissing billy Burke. take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love lucky
0: enough to have old home movies, then you are probably really concerned about how to preserve them and how to get them into some kind of format that you can share with your family and use in your own family history projects. And what about digitizing and preserving old photographs? You know, we all have those. It can all seem like a pretty daunting task, and that's why I've invited digital film conversion expert Kristen Harding from Larson Digital in for a chat. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, uh, Kristen and I met at the BYU Family History and Genealogy Conference back in July 2015, and her exhibitor booth was right across from ours, so it didn't take long for me to notice how passionate she was uh, when she talked to conference guests about digitizing their old media. And in fact, I've never heard anyone so passionate about digitizing. How did you get that way, Kristen? How did this become your passion? <laughs> you know,
3: I was raised around photography. My father was an amateur photographer. And so I, he was just always taking pictures. And I grew up just having a love of family photos. And then a few years ago, after having my first son, my hard drive crashed. And I lost all of my son's newborn pictures. I lost everything. Oh. And it just sort of solidified my desire and fear of losing my precious irreplaceable photos. So between the two, I've become quite an advocate for backing things up.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, here at Genealogy Gems, we've been uh, talking lately about the importance, of course, of backing up all of our computer files, particularly since our experience with our new sponsor, Backblaze, has shown us how easy and inexpensive it is, really, to have kind of a first-rate cloud backup service. And that's, that's key. Gosh. How awful to lose all those pictures. I I remember once we mistakenly recorded over an old video of my daughter when she was a newborn and it was like, no, you know, so, I mean, nowadays, at least we have this option that we can back up, but there's an important step. It has to happen before we can back stuff up. And you have to digitize it in the first place, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And that's what you do. What kinds of things do you see genealogists digitizing?
3: You know, honestly, we receive... Almost anything you can imagine, people are bringing in to get digitized. Um, you know, obviously we get we get lots of photos and slides and negatives, um, but what we're really starting to see a huge increase is your audio reels, the reel to reel audio, yes, movie film and videotapes, because those are things that weren't easy to get converted to digital, and now the technology is there, and that's what I'm seeing a a, a really large increase in.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting, Kristen, because I know my listeners know that just a couple of years ago, I got in contact with a, a cousin of my husband's uh, that we'd he'd kind of lost touch with. And she brought me this amazing old 50-year-old cardboard box full of stuff. And in there was a reel-to-reel. Mm-hmm. It was his grandparents playing uh, music back from the silent film era. Mm-hmm. And it was fabulous, but it was really challenging to find somebody who could digitize it? Yeah, and so you do all kinds of media. Uh, fo- you said photos and video and real to real audio. That's fantastic. Yeah. So whatever we have, we can get it digitized into a nice new format. Yeah,
3: yeah. Quite literally, pretty much anything you have,
0: uh, we can handle that. Well, let's start off by talking about images we photographs certainly that's something that everybody's got Uh, you know part of the problem is oftentimes we're fortunate enough to have a lot of photographs and it's a question of where do you start and how do you recommend to people how to kind of prioritize if you can't either afford to or have the time to or whatever to do all your photos Mm -hmm. in one batch what do you suggest how do they tackle that
3: My suggestion is to focus on the items that you find the most important and valuable to yourself. You know, whether it's the oldest photo or the newest photo, it's the special moments, the most important emotional moments that you have captured on photos. Those are the ones you're going to want to get done first. Because if your house were to burn down, if something were to happen and you were to lose it, what items would you be the most sad about
0: losing? And those are the ones you need to get digitized first. And I imagine also that there might be some, particularly for a genealogist, Mm -hmm. that are in poor condition, Mm -hmm. they're really fragile, and they're kind of disintegrating. Uh, Would you recommend Just going ahead and doing those as well and including them in that batch of the really kind of the most important to us.
3: I, I do, yes. If you've got a photo that is, you know, cracking and breaking and just it is fading and degraded to a point where you need to get it done immediately, those are also ones that I would get done first. Just because, as we all know, all the media that we have, our photos, our videos, slides, none of them are meant to last forever, They will degrade and they will be gone at some point in time. And so if you see something that is already physically degrading, you need to get that done as soon as possible.
0: So if we're starting to kind of manhandle Mm -hmm. these photos, particularly the more fragile ones, Mm -hmm. um, how do you recommend that your customers get these to you? Do you put them into sheet protectors? What what do you do so that they make the journey to you safely?
3: If you have a photo that is like, if we're talking the fragile ones, the ones that are, you know, starting to break and crack. Yeah. I do recommend like the, not like the sticky photo protectors. Don't ever do that. But just like the little page protectors where it's just, you know, where it's got kind of the, the front and the back that's protecting it. I would recommend something like that if
0: it's falling apart. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's a short journey mm-hmm. and then hopefully that they'll, uh, be digitized mm-hmm. and then we don't have to worry as much about mm-hmm. it. Um, Let's talk about photo resolution. Okay. I think that's probably one of the most common questions that people have. Mm-hmm. Tell us about photo resolution and what resolution that you recommend for scanning our old family photos. Right. So resolution, it's if it, that's a word that scares people. I, I say that.
3: Yeah. And like I can just tell, like they're they're confused, they feel overwhelmed because it's not a word that we commonly use. But if you think about resolution in terms of cameras, digital cameras, and megapixels. That's something we're all a little more familiar with. The higher you go, the better quality you're going to get. It means the more pixels that you are going to have in your photo. Um, So whether you're talking photos or slides or negatives, it's the same concept. The higher you go, you know, it's going to give you more pixels. Now when it comes to photos, because that's different than film, photos, the scanning resolution I recommend is 600 dpi for a 4x6 and larger. And the reason I recommend just 600 DPI is because anything larger than that, you'll scan larger, you'll get more pixels, but at that point, you're really only picking up the grain of the photograph. You're really not, you're not actually picking up more pixels from the photo. So 600 DPI is really all you need to go. Like some photo scanners, you can crank those things up to like 2000 DPI and it will give you a whole lot of pixels but it's not necessarily creating a better quality photo because it's a photo and it's printed on paper.
0: And we're also kind of juggling storage Mm -hmm. space. I mean, whether you're buying cloud storage or you're putting on your hard drive, of course, I assume the higher we go Mm -hmm. in our DPI, the bigger the file is going to be. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't want to over scan, I would guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, because it's just going to cost you storage space. Right? Yeah,
3: storage space and time. Time is and the time. most critical piece when it comes to digitizing. Whether you're doing it yourself, is the higher the resolution you go, the longer it's going to take. So if you've got five, well, no big deal. But if you have five thousand and you're adding, yeah. you know, you could you could double your scan times. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, that's something to take into consideration because photos, it is somewhat limited to how high you can scan it based on the size of the original photo. Um, now I will mention if you, you know, we come across the really tiny photos that are like two inches by an inch and a half, like the really little ones. Those are the ones where I would actually still recommend going at a higher resolution, maybe like 1200 DPI. And the reason is, and I know that just, went against what I just said is because if you want to make a reprint out of it, you need to have higher pixels and you're not going to get the file size that you need to create a four by six or five by seven. So I would still scan that one at a higher resolution. Just so you have the pixels you need to make the reprint. The reprint is still going to show. It's still going to be obvious that this came from a really small photo, but it at least gives you the pixels so that you, you can make that reprint
0: when customers bring their photos to you are you kind of making those judgment calls in terms of when you do the scanning how you um you know which resolution you're doing and that type of thing
3: you know we we talk with them when they bring their items into us we talk with them and kind of explain here's your options you know this is what you can do with this resolution and 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 then we kind of let them make that decision so if we have something that's really really small and we feel like it needs to be scanned higher based on what they're going to do with it afterwards and that's kind of the big determination is are they going to make reprints are they just archiving this are you know what are they trying to do what are their goals and that affects how we're going to save the
0: files well and that would actually be a really big benefit um, and that's something I want to talk about was the benefits mm-hmm. of having this done professionally because uh, as we're sitting down and I know a lot of folks like, love to get together and they'll say, I'm going to scan for three hours every Sunday <laughs> and it would be awful to do all that and invest weeks of doing that just to find out that actually you weren't scanning at the proper way mm-hmm. for the picture at hand in order, like you say, for the end result, what mm-hmm. it is you want to do with it. So let's talk about this. What are some of the benefits? Because most people have some sort of scanner. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could scan themselves. What would be the advantage to having your photos professionally scanned with, with by a company like yours?
3: You know, there's two aspects to it. There's the time aspect that you brought up. I mean, we all lead busy lives. And, you know, to devote three hours a week, that doesn't sound like a big deal until Sunday comes around and then it feels yeah. like a real big deal. Um, so the time aspect is, is a huge part of it as well. Um, and then the other part is just people typically don't really know what they're doing. You know, the concept isn't that hard. I'm going to put the photo down and I'm going to scan it. It's going to show up uh-huh. on my computer and I think I'm done, but I mean, there's so much more to it, you know. There's there's specific settings based on the types of photos, um, and then after that, after a photo's been scanned, you still have to go in, and you really should color correct that digitally in Photoshop, make sure the crop is proper and just do everything you can to make that photo look as good as you can. And those are things that unless you're really familiar with Photoshop can be very daunting and very time consuming. So there's that aspect as
0: well. So your company, what you guys do is also some of that post scanning production?
3: Yes. Yes. Everything that gets scanned is going to, after everything scanned, We send it to our editing department and then we have someone who will go through and they will edit all the digital images because, you know, like I said, everything is going to degrade and fade over time. And our goal is to, you know, restore it back to the way it looked brand new. So Uh that does require digital editing every single photo.
0: And can they opt if there are some where they kind of want that patina of the years, they can keep them that way. And other ones, uh, you can kind of restore them back to the way they were when they were originally taken. Can they make some, some uh, selections about that? Yeah. If,
3: if they have a photo that they want they want, the old look to it, they just need to let us know that, you know, hey, yeah, don't, don't make that one look pretty. Leave <laughs> it the way it is. But yeah, we get customers quite often that just say, you know, I would rather do my own Photoshop. So just send me the raw files. And that's what we do.
0: I mean, that's kind of exciting mm-hmm. to think about your images coming back so Carefully done and so beautiful mm-hmm. uh, and kind of restored, and, and knowing that it isn't necessarily going to be dozens and dozens of hours mm-hmm. of our time. Um, because I imagine you have um, some great equipment to work with. Mm-hmm. I imagine your scanners are uh, what a bit more high end than the ones we have at home. Yes, um,
3: we only have commercial grade equipment in our facility. So that not only
0: gives us faster
3: scan times than you would see on your home scanners, but it actually gives you, you know, sharper, clearer pictures, the color, the contrast, all of those things are going to be superior than what you can get at with a home scanner. Um, So it really just comes down to do you have the time? Do you have, you know, the skill to do this the right way? Or do you just need to get whatever you can done by yourself? So it's just kind of your personal situation.
0: Now, when the images come back, to the customer, what format? Are they on a flash drive? Are they on the cloud? Are they on a disk? How do they get back to them? You know, um, every customer gets that option. They can choose. So some people want
3: them on a disk for their computer. Some want them only in the cloud. Some want them on a hard drive. Some want them on a flash drive. So it's really just what it is that you want it saved on. Most of our customers still want them saved on disks. And we're seeing a huge increase in customers wanting them um, uploaded to the cloud. And so those are the two most popular choices as a disk for the computer or just directly into the cloud Um, or just downloading it. That's an option as well. They can just download the files right from us.
0: Now, I'm guessing that since you're scanning them, you're attaching a name to the image that's more of a a numeric or something Mm -hmm. like that. So one, can you retain the order in which The images are because sometimes that really does matter. We try to keep them as genealogists in the order in which they appeared even in the book, even if we took them out of the book Mm because that that context means something. Mm -hmm. Are we getting some kind of a numeric name and can they edit that? to be s- more specific about the content of the picture when they get it back from you?
3: Yes. Um so when we scan the files they'll just go in image 1, image 2, image 3. Um and if they're organized uh, like if you have like different groupings, we'll create a folder, you know, called like 1954 to 1958 and then scan all of the pictures that go in that era into that folder. So it's just however it's organized when we receive it. Uh, But then on top of that, we offer, and along with some, you know, you can do this on your computer, but we offer an online program where if you want something more specific than just image one, image two, you can actually do rename the files and say, you know, this is 1954, this is Aunt Susan on a trip to California, and you can get that in the file names, and that also kind of helps tag different uh, information to the pictures.
0: So that's after you've scanned mm-hmm. them, they're somehow on the cloud and you have a tool that they can use to do that? Yeah, yeah. We have a – it's an online system. It's different
3: than the cloud. It's an online system where you can go through and you can, you can edit the file names if you choose to do so. Um, so you can do it using our online system or once you get it back – Once it's on your computer, whether you got it on a disk or the cloud or downloading it, you just put it on your computer, and you can rename those files as well. There's no – at least from us, there's no copy protection put on it. There's nothing. You own those files, so
0: you can rename them to whatever you want. Perfect. Mm Perfect. And for those of you listening, if you would like to learn more about how to organize the file names of all your images, particularly um, to kind of support your genealogy research, I've got a two-episode series. It's on the free Family History Genealogy Made Easy podcast. We talk about that. We talk about uh, organization also in the video series. It's available to our premium members. It's called Hard Drive Organization. So we'll have links in the show notes to that. So, Kristen, let's move on to moving images. I mean, I've been talking a lot lately on the show about uh, videos, our home movies, getting them up onto YouTube, Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. Lots of people have uh, at least a couple of old home movies, and we have them in a lot of different formats. We've got, you know, Super 8, and VHS. I know I've got something in almost every Mm -hmm. format, and you said something that kind of caught my attention when we were chatting at BYU. You are pretty adamant that we should preserve our old home movies as MP4 digital video files. Now, if we've put our old videotapes and movie film onto, let's say, a DVD or a CD, uh, and a lot of people have done that over the past 15 years or so, is that the type of file that are on those CDs? And is there a difference between when you create an mp4 and perhaps the video files we already have on a cd or dvd yeah they're they're very different
3: and I, i have a love for both but i am a very strong advocate that we need to be saving our video files as a digital file whether it's an mp4 which is the most universal or an avi file um so a dvd is a playable disc that you would put into your dvd player and play on your television or you could play it on your computer as well. But it's a playable mm-hmm. disc. It does not allow you the ability to edit that footage, to easily get it up onto YouTube, to put it online, to do you know whatever it is you want to do. It's very limited on top of it actually being a compressed file because it's on a DVD. Um, and so with the way that digital technology has moved, you have the ability when we capture these video files and they're saved digitally to get the uncompressed digital
0: file. And let me just stop you there because you mentioned real quickly that the files on the DVD are compressed. Mm-hmm. You have the ability to create uncompressed. And what we're talking about is a quality level, mm-hmm. Yes, we? yes, because... One uncompressed is a much bigger file, so it's obviously going to be what? Sharper, better looking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah
3: so the mp4 digital files that we are creating are going to be your uncompressed files in comparison to a DVD and so when when our customers order we usually typically recommend getting a copy of both I'm not saying that DVDs are bad by any means but they're not as high of quality as those digital files and so you'll get your DVD that you'll play on your television which is great and it's convenient and it's easy to share um, but then you also can get your digital video file and we can offer those files either on a disk, and that's not a playable DVD, it's just a disk that holds data. We can put it in the cloud, we can put it on a hard drive. There's many ways that you can receive these files, Uh, but the important thing is is that you are saving those digital video files.
0: And I I really have to agree with you on the importance of the MP4. I know that when I create um, the video, we have lots of classes. My classes are on Mm -hmm. video, and we put those onto our premium membership site, and those are all MP4s. Mm -hmm. I want them to be as high a quality visually as we can get, but it's also just a much more flexible file because... I can use it in lots of different places. Like you said, I can upload it to YouTube. I can add it to a um, PowerPoint project Mm -hmm. or something that I want to create for families. So I, I really agree that having those individual MP4 files gives you and the future generations more flexibility to use Mm -hmm. them in lots of different ways versus just having them put onto a DVD and it's playable and that's Mm -hmm. it. You
3: know, I mean, the thing with DVDs is they don't last forever. They will go bad. Yes. So if you only have your video files backed up on only a DVD, you may want to consider having someone extract the data off of that and at least backing up the files that you can, because not only do they go bad at some point, but they get lost, they get scratched, you know, life happens and they will go missing. And so that's what worries me when it's only saved on a DVD. You've got one copy and that's it.
0: Ah, uh, I totally mm-hmm. agree. And, and for me, that's critical too. I mean, if uh, my hard drive were to crash or whatever, you know, it's like, I know that if I have that original uncompressed MP4 on my hard mm-hmm. drive, it's already backed up with Backblaze. So if something happens with the website and even my computer melted down, I still have all those individual files. Mm-hmm. I can just restore everything back up and I wouldn't be able to do that if I was putting them on, on a DVD. Correct. Mm-hmm. So walk us through the process. How do we get our old home movies converted to MP4? Okay.
3: Well, you know, you have two choices. You have, you know, taking it into a professional company. Um, and then you can also try and do it yourself. So when it comes to picking a professional company, you are going to want to, number one, make sure that they offer the digital MP4 files. Not all companies do. So that's kind of just an obvious you know, thing. Check and make sure that they offer it. And then find out what type of compression that they're using. Are they going to DVD first and then extracting the file off the DVD? Because if that's the case, they're giving you a really low-quality product. So you want to make sure that they're going digital first, and then they'll create a DVD for you. Um, and then when it comes to trying to do it yourself, if you, if you think that you can tackle this project, you know, by all means, it is possible. So when it comes to converting video to digital, it is a real-time transfer. So if you have a four-hour videotape, it will take four hours for the whole thing to capture.
2: So you're
3: going to, so it's it's definitely a time-consuming project. Um, so you'll need something that can actually play the tape, and then you'll need a video converter that can actually grab that data and convert it into a digital file, and then get it onto a computer. Um, so you're going to need software for that as well, and then you'll need to be able to edit that and re-render those
0: files. Yeah. I I find videos more challenging Mm -hmm. (laughs) process than photos. It's doable, like you Mm -hmm. say, but it's nice to know that you have a company like yours or other companies that do that digital conversion are available to us. Would they just put their, um, let's say they've got VHS and Super 8, do those go into a shipping box? Mm -hmm. Do they ship them to you if they're not uh, located in your town? And do you recommend a particular like do you say use FedEx or use you know, our big fear is we're gonna lose. Yes,
3: something. yes, yes, yes. So yeah, if you don't live within a reasonable driving distance from us or from whoever you, you know, have have chosen to use, um you can just ship your your tapes to us. And you you bring up a great point. FedEx and UPS are fantastic carriers. I trust them wholeheartedly. We never, ever have problems with them. And we receive multiple shipments every single day, and we're shipping things out every single day. The post office, I love them. However, I don't personally trust them with my irreplaceable items. And so I would strongly advocate just use UPS or FedEx, and you will have no problems whatsoever.
0: I have to totally agree. I have shipped books to conferences and they have been either destroyed or left in the corner of a post mm-hmm. office. I mean, that's a true mm-hmm. story and I never got them versus when I've used a UPS or FedEx, it's always yeah. there. And uh, I've never, ever had a problem with that. So, okay, so we can get these to mm-hmm. you. And uh, I wanted to kind of wrap up with kind of a final tip and it's one that you've kind of already alluded to, which is save multiple copies of all these To multiple locations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know when I look through the information that the Library of Congress has about their digitization, there's so much about redundancy. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit more. Um,
3: I'm a strong advocate for having redundant backup and not just having you know a backup on a DVD and then a backup on my hard drive both located in my home you need to have a backup located at least one backup that is outside of your home so that if a disaster does strike your home whether it be flooding or fire or if you move and then everything just gets misplaced you have a backup somewhere else um, and that's why I love the cloud because that is so easy so convenient um, that you can just upload your files to the cloud so if something does happen in your home if your computer does does crash. If your discs do get scratched and damaged or lost, you have a backup that you know where it's at and you know it won't be damaged by whatever catastrophe just hit your home.
0: Yep, I think that's true. I, I think a lot of people do take that first step, mm-hmm. which is making the copy. Mm-hmm. So they've got, like I originally had a, a DVD in the kind of little fire safe mm-hmm. box in my closet. Mm-hmm. And then I've got the stuff on my computer. But that's not Mm off-site. Even a fire-safe box isn't, you know, foolproof in a tornado. So having that extra copy Mm off-site and... As we've mentioned before, and everybody knows, I use Backblaze because that's my favorite. But whatever you do, get it into, and particularly like a cloud service, Mm -hmm. where it is Mm off-site. And that way you've really covered all your bases. Mm -hmm. Um, This is all really helpful because I think you've helped demystify a lot of the process. It's kind of daunting, and yet we all know how important it is to get our photos and our videos and and our audio, as you mentioned, all of that in a format that we can use and enjoy and we can share and preserve it for the generations to Mm -hmm. come. Now, you've been so generous in sharing your expertise If somebody decided that they've done their homework and they'd like to go with Larson Digital, I think you have a little special code for us. They can get a discount. Yeah.
3: For any of your listeners, if they have anything that they want to get converted to digital, we'll love to help them out. Um, So by being a listener, they can receive 10% off. So they just need to use the coupon code GENGEM10. So for Genealogy Gems, 10 Um, And that will give them 10% off. And so if they're using the online order form, they put in that code. But if they're around us locally and they come in, they just need to mention the radio show and they will get 10% off.
0: Awesome. Mm Well, Kristen, I really appreciate the fact that you've been sharing your expertise. Uh, Kristen Harding again is with Larson Digital, and you can find them at larsondigital.com. Um, I highly recommend them. Kristen it was just absolutely a pleasure to visit with at BYU, and so knowledgeable. I noticed you sharing uh, great information with everybody who came to your booth at BYU, and with us, regardless of who they end up scanning mm-hmm. with. Very cool that you've got ten percent off for our listeners. Yeah. And uh, as Kristen said, that's gen, gem, G-E-N, like Nancy, G-E-M, like Mary, 10, all together. Does it matter if it's upper or lowercase? No, it doesn't matter. Okay, that's going to get you mm-hmm. 10% off services. So now's the time, folks. <laughs> we have to get our photos and our movies and all our precious stuff scanned and digitized. Anything that uh, you may need, any questions,
3: is on our website. But if you have questions, just give us a call. Uh, we have so many lovely people who love to, you know, answer any questions that you have. Our phone number is one
0: 8357 Perfect. And we'll have that. We'll have all of this information, including the ten percent coupon code, in the show notes for this episode. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure, and you've been such thank a help. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you
2: the movies, if you can't make love at home. Going to your seat, you've got a dandy can you can shine your shoes on someone else's pen, <laughs> take your girlie to the movies, if you can't make love at home.
0: Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage. Now, I know that you tune in to the Genealogy Gems podcast because you know that I'm going to carefully vet the products that come across my desk. And I'm only going to bring to this show the ones that I really think are the real gems. Well, MyHeritage.com is in that category and I couldn't be happier that they've signed on to support and sponsor this free podcast. I've spent the last several months really digging into my heritage, and I found some powerful tools that I think you really need in your genealogy tool belt. First of all, they have over 70 million members worldwide. If you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you wanna be. Get your tree posted on their website and start to see the magic as they automatically match it up with other trees not just with genealogists in the country where you live but genealogists around the world then there's my heritage's unique and powerful search system it's called record matches it constantly calls five billion historical records for your family it's the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles books and other free text documents it's also the first to translate names between languages. And I personally like that the matches from the historical newspaper collection at MyHeritage, they show up towards the top of the results list. So visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started. So there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. When I was in grade school, I would save my quarter weekly allowances up, and if I could resist spending that money on the newest Partridge Family album, I would make the happy trip to the bookstore with my mom, and we would buy the next paperback volume of the Little House Books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. That book collection is one of the precious items that has traveled with me throughout my life, and certainly I have shared it with my three daughters. So, needless to say, I was so happy to hear that Laura's original, never before published autobiography entitled Pioneer Girl was making it to print. The South Dakota Historical Society Press commissioned Pamela Smith Hill to take readers on the journey through this long awaited volume. And here to talk about Laura and this new book is the author, Pamela Smith Hill. Welcome, Pamela. Hi, thank you for inviting me, Lisa. Thank you so much for being here. Now I said author, but really you were an editor. You were the um the the guide, if you will, of kind of pulling this all together and doing something that many of us as genealogists at some point want to do, need to do, or compelled to do, which is to take all the stories, all the data, and then fill in the research and try to make it cohesive and still compelling storytelling. Tell us about just that challenge because uh, this was quite a big adventure for you, I would imagine. Yes. Well, when I first thought
4: about doing an annotated version of Pioneer Girl, it seemed at the time to be a relatively straightforward process. Uh, The manuscript itself is relatively short, about um, 200, 220 pages long. It seemed to be something I could do perhaps in a year, year and a half. Of course, that was really foolhardy, and I think <laughs> I, I think I made the assumption that I could work on it so quickly because I had already written a biography on Laura Ingalls Wilder, so I had a great deal of research already here. Yes, but what I didn't fully realize at the time is that the rough draft version of Pioneer Girl, though it is relatively short as manuscripts go, it serves as the basis for. Wilder's entire Little House series. So one sentence or one paragraph might generate five to six to ten annotations, and some of those could be very complicated. So the process took me much longer than I originally envisioned because it did require
0: so much research. Right. And not only are you kind of lightly editing her work, kind of uh, bringing it to the new audience, but I imagine editing your own work, all the research. What do you bring in and what do you leave out? That is the eternal question for somebody trying to tell the family history. I think that's a very, very good question. And in the
4: case of Pioneer Girl, because it turned out to be so heavily annotated, for me the challenge was how to keep the annotations short concise and informative and yet still interesting, because I felt that if a reader was going to pause in the reading of Pioneer Girl itself to read an annotation, readers should be rewarded with something that was interesting and entertaining (laughs) as well as informative. So, creatively, that was an enormous
0: challenge. I love that. We need to have that on the show notes for this episode. Readers need to be rewarded, and um, I think sometimes, particularly for a family historian who's trying to tell their family's story, we're almost more thinking about rewarding ourselves with delivering all these wonderful goodies that we think we've collected, but it's not necessarily that rewarding for the reader.
4: Right. I think it's very important to keep the reader or your audience in mind, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. I write both and sometimes as a researcher, you come across some really compelling information that may be very detailed and fascinating to you because you have a stake in the research. I mean, you wouldn't be researching a topic if you weren't passionate about it. But then you have to back away and think, how much does the reader really need to know and what is important in the context of the story I'm telling for the reader to understand? Otherwise, if it's not absolutely essential for the reader, as fascinating as it might be, I usually tend to put that information aside in a drawer, and, and sometimes I might come back to it. There are moments when I suddenly realize, oh, now I understand that a reader does in fact need this piece of information, but I think you have to heavily edit yourself as a researcher to make sure that you're not inundating readers with too much information and losing them in the process.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, as as we were all kind of growing up with the little house books, the story sort of always was that she sat down one day in her 60s and this incredible series sort of miraculously got written. But That's a bit of a myth, isn't it? I mean, wasn't she developing herself as a writer throughout her life?
4: Yes, you're absolutely right about this. The myth that I think most of us grew up with was that Laura Ingalls Wilder was this sweet little white-haired old lady who just took it in her head one day to sit down and write her life story. And then, without any writing experience whatsoever, she turned out a a series of classic children's books. Yes. Um, And and I think that's an overstatement. And... um, it it certainly gives hope to people who have nurtured an ambition to write all their lives but uh... lorings wilder worked hard as a writer and her professional career actually began when she was in her forties and she began writing for uh, an agricultural newspaper called the missouri ruralist the missouri ruralist was the largest agricultural newspaper in the state of missouri at the time and so although we now kind of think of Wilder's agricultural work as being um, somehow inferior or less brilliant than um, other forms of journalism or nonfiction writing. Wilder's work there was very impressive, and she moved from being a columnist to actually being a page editor. She began writing for The Ruralist in about 1911 and continued to write for them toward the end of her career weekly until 1924 when she decided to stop writing for the newspaper. And in addition to all of those years writing for the Missouri Ruralist, Wilder also wrote a handful of articles for prominent American national magazines, McCall's Magazine and The Country Gentleman. And during that period when she was working and writing for national magazines. She began her editorial collaboration with her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. So Loring Wilder had um, quite a lengthy apprenticeship as a professional writer writing nonfiction before she began writing the Little House series.
5: evidence in a 90-year-old paternity case came to light recently in the form of a DNA test. While most cases of unknown paternity include an unwed woman and a child, this one had the unique distinction of also involving the President of the United States. Hello Genealogy Gems listeners, this is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. The New York Times recently named former president Warren G. Harding as the father of Elizabeth Ann Blazing after her son James Blazing and two individuals related to the Hardings were found to have shared DNA. Just to be clear, the DNA test results don't and can't name a specific relative as the shared source of any two individuals' DNA. Though we would like it to be, it's not DNA in, ancestor's name and birth certificate out. The actual report from the testing company was that James Blazing and Peter and Abigail Harding were second cousins. This means that the shared ancestral couple for these three has to be among their four sets of great grandparents. The DNA alone cannot tell us which set. It was a combination of the DNA and the known genealogy that provided such a high level of confidence in this case. While there are certainly mixed feelings among members of the Harding family about this new evidence, this is clearly a win for DNA. A man who was thought to have never had children did, in fact, have one child and now a grandchild. This preserves a genetic legacy for his family line that might have otherwise been lost. This is also a clear win for the power of curious descendants and the healing balm of time. It was actually Harding's grand-niece and grand-nephew who instigated the testing out of a pure desire to know the truth. Time has allowed them this curiosity without threat of a scandal, and the technology has provided the necessary tools to once and for all more fully understand their ancestor and the life he lived. Ancestry DNA, the testing company that performed the testing, declared after this story broke that DNA testing can rewrite history, which may be true. However, I prefer to think of DNA testing not as a whiteout that can erase false accusations, but rather as a filter that allows you to separate fact from fiction so that history can reflect lives rather than lies. What will DNA testing do for you? If you aren't sure where to start, or if you have some results but aren't sure how to read them, stop that in at the Genealogy Gem store to peruse my quick guides. Send me an email at guide at yourdnaguide.com and I'll point you in the right direction.
0: Thanks for joining me for this Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 183. We'll have our book club interview in its entirety in the next premium episode. That's going to be, I think it's Genealogy Gems premium episode 127. And of course, we will have links in the show notes for everything we talked about in this episode. Head to genealogygems.com, hover your mouse over podcast, click on Genealogy Gems podcast. There's two there. There's family history and Genealogy Gems When you click on Genealogy Gems, you'll just follow the links numerically to episode number 183. And of course, we appreciate when you use our links that you find there on the show notes, because uh, any links that you use to to pick up a copy of Pioneer Girl or go to Backblaze, whatever you do, you support the free podcast when you do that. And we very much appreciate that. And for me, I'm going to be hitting the road. All September and October of 2015, pretty much every weekend I am hitting the road from New York to California, lots of states in between. I hope I'm coming to a town near you because I'd love to meet you and have you come and uh, join us. genealogy education on the road. We do it at seminars and conferences. So uh, if you go to the website and hover your mouse over seminars, you'll see there a link. One is book Lisa. So you can book me to come to your town, but also you'll see Lisa's schedule and um, you'll see how busy I'm going to be. I'm really looking forward to it though. And I do hope that if we're coming to a town near you, that you'll uh, join us. You'll find all the links there. All right, well, I got to get ready. I got to start packing. So thanks for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.